Hey, welcome to the 1505 Club. I've often said that you don't need to sell chiropractic. When done correctly, chiropractic sells itself. However, there are things we can do to aid in the process, and there are things that we can do to get in the way. So this topic presents an excellent opportunity to talk about when our strengths become our weaknesses. According to the Real Strengths Assessment by Brian Buffini, you can learn more about that on his podcast, people can be broken into one of two groups when it comes to their preferred sales approach. People are either motivators or they're facilitators. Motivators focus on creating a call to action, while facilitators focus on the details to help people make a good decision. Whichever one is your natural bent is the one that you will go to instinctively every single time. The question is, can you go to that well too often so that your strength actually becomes your weakness? Let me give you some examples. I have a friend who is motivational, and he prefers car salesmen who are also motivational. Consequently, he's purchased several cars that were substandard, including a few actual lemons. The reason being that what he wanted was not what he needed. He needed a little more facilitation, but of course, he didn't have the patience for that. On the other hand, Brian Buffini tells the story of his wife, a facilitator, buying a car from another facilitator. They spent hours and hours and multiple days going over the details, but it was clear that neither one was inclined to create any action and ever make a decision. Brian asked the salesman if he ever felt like he was missing out on sales. He admitted that he did. So Brian suggested him that he ask his wife if she would like to take the car home. Of course, she did. And that simple act initiated a sale that might not have ever happened otherwise. I think it's fair to say that motivators often do more selling than facilitators, but they also have a worse reputation, especially when they like to do the hard sell. Now, if their only motivation is money, then they probably don't care too much about their reputation because they're making money. However, I would argue that they should because when motivation reaches the extreme of motivating without the client's best interest in mind, I found that those are the chiropractors who often have to move to a new city and start over every few years. There is value in reputation. At the same time, I fear that many of the people listening to this are naturally facilitators and they're giving out the best advice that they can, but they're wondering why they're not getting the sales that they expected. Obviously, you've probably already figured out that the perfect approach is to be a blend of the two. That means you first have to figure out which one you are and then to begin to work on developing the attributes of the other one. So this begs the question, can you be so strong in one of these two attributes that you go there so often that your strength actually becomes your weakness? I really like this concept of the strength becoming a weakness, and it's one I wanted to think about for a bit, and not just in the sense of selling, we can relate this to chiropractic as well. Let's say that you're in the process of learning to adjust. One day, you manage to get a pull move. So you develop a little bit of confidence and the next time you have to adjust the lumbar, especially in L5, you go straight back to that pull move because now you've got a little confidence you can do it. In a short amount of time, you're using a pull move for every lumbar that comes your way. Suddenly, you find, or maybe you're oblivious to the fact, that your strength has now become your weakness. What you perceived as a strength is keeping you from developing the skills to give your patient what they really need. Some patients need pull moves, but some need pushes. Some need the knee chest and some need the high-low. 
it's pretty easy to realize that the more you go to the pull move, because that's your strength, or at least your perceived strength, the more you, you neglect the other methods, and the more they become a weakness through sheer neglect. I know this is not a hypothetical because I've seen it happen, and often with the excuse that at least you have one good way to make the adjustment. I would say, from my experience, that as much as 30 or even 40% of the L5s I've seen in my career could only be fixed properly on the knee chest. That's a table that must be mastered, but when you have one good adjustment you want to hold on to, it often keeps you from developing the skills to master another way, because of course, you go back to square one, and that can be embarrassing. Not to mention the fact that learning how to use the knee chest table is hard. <laughs> it's really hard. I think I was in my first year of practice, and I wasn't very good at pull moves, so I was pushing almost everything. I was adjusting my cousin one day, and I decided for some reason to do a pull move. I took my time, and I set it up, and I wasn't really expecting anything special, but the joint exploded. More importantly, I felt the joint glide effortlessly into place with no resistance or muscle response. I wasn't suddenly good at pull moves, but I now had a target, and I knew what I was trying to create. At that time, I made an intentional decision that I was not going to just start doing pull moves all the time. Instead, I wanted to figure out what clues I could look for that would give me an idea of when the pull move might be most appropriate for the patient. Of course, you can do them in such a way that you can always create a cavitation, but maybe I was idealistic. I always believed that there was a way that was best for each patient, and I was determined to find it. Today, when I do a pull move, one of the things I consider is that if I palpate and I find that the greatest restriction of movement is lateral bending, then that's the situation where I'm more inclined or maybe most inclined to consider a pull move. Pull moves don't usually set as deep anteriorly, but they're great for closing a lateral wedge and then allowing you to get more anterior movement than you would set with, say, a push move that does not correct the laterality as well. The other major consideration is muscle spasm. If you're trying to use a pull move and the muscles under your hand are spasming with a fast twitch muscle response, it's often beneficial to go to the other side and pull with the open wedge down on the table. This allows for patient relaxation and a more gentle contact, and you can make the adjustment. It may not be the perfect adjustment, but you can get the process started and then come back on the next time and maybe do a push move or even go to the knee chest. This process demonstrates why it's so important to be equally competent on all the tables, so you no longer care what the patient has or how you do it best, but you can choose the adjustment that's best for the patient based on what their body needs and what it can do, rather than being restricted to only the moves you're comfortable with. Okay, so now I'm about three years in practice. I'm pushing almost everything with some pull moves mixed in here and there, and I'm just starting to use the high-low once in a while to adjust an L5. One day, my high-low table breaks. At this point, I'm seeing the value of using the high-low, Enough that I realize I can't just do pushes and pulls and expect the same results on every patient. So I do the one thing that I've been terrified to do up to this point. I start putting people on the knee chest table to adjust their L5s. Now I can tell you when I was in school, I would often see Gonstead doctors who had their knee chest table folded up against the wall and they would insist it wasn't necessary because you could do everything on the high-low. Yes, that really was a big thing in the late 90s. It never made much sense to me so I thought I wanted to be good on the knee chest table, whether anyone else thought it was necessary or not. All that to say, I didn't really have any guidance on how to do this, so I just kind of dove in. The only help I had was what little I had learned from adjusting some L5s on the high-low. 
That's why I always recommend to students that you try learning to adjust L5 on the high-low before you try to learn on the knee chest. It's a great way to get started and to develop the feel you'll need. I'll also add that after doing a few adjustments on the knee chest, I realized that for me, I like to keep the tension on my high-low thoracic drop dialed up to as much tension as I can get. The reason being that if the tension is loose, then it's just a poor duplicate of the knee chest. But when the tension is dialed up to provide resistance, it can be used to allow people to relax who are having a difficult time relaxing on the knee chest. And it allows me to give more of a thrust while maintaining a shallow set due to the resistance that's there. In this way, the high-low becomes a unique instrument with a specialized function and not merely a duplication of something I already have. So as I slowly developed more ability and timing on the knee chest, I found it had a reciprocal effect that improved my ability on the high-low. I think it's a great idea to think of these two tables, the high-low and the knee chest, as going hand-in-hand -hand, as the skills required for both are very similar. In fact, that essential skill is a combination of timing and depth. As everyone knows, you don't want to thrust too deeply, but if you get your timing right, you won't have to. Therefore, it's safe to say that if you feel like you need more force when adjusting on the knee chest table, then you probably need to work on your timing to find that point of maximum patient relaxation. Okay, now that's been a fun little rabbit trail to demonstrate how easily our strengths can become our weaknesses if we go to the well too often and we're too quick to go to our strengths or we find ourselves in a position where our strength is not what is called for in that situation. If we get back to how we sell chiropractic, I have no doubt that there are some who are listening to this who struggle because you're explaining chiropractic in as much detail as you know how, but people are still skeptical or maybe even refusing your care altogether. You find yourself wondering why people are not more interested or why all the stuff you're saying doesn't really matter to them and doesn't have the importance that you think it should have. Let me kindly suggest to you that you're going to your strength, but you're going to that well too often and for too long. And it's actually having the reverse effect where people are losing interest instead of gaining it. Have you ever had that experience where you're explaining chiropractic and you realize that the more you talk, the more you're losing the patient? In fact, you might even feel like you're losing your own interest and your own trust in yourself. Your explanations start to sound like they're made up or excuses, and you can see the patient losing trust. This is when the facilitator has gone on lo too long, and they're relying on their strength to try to dig them out. Unfortunately, that strength has now become a weakness, and the more you rely on it, the deeper the problem becomes. This is when you have to make a conscious decision to become the motivator instead. So how do you do that? Well, you need a call to action. At the very least, you need to stop talking and start working. Whatever you do, don't start these conversations after you adjust the patient, because then you'll be stuck in a conversation that could go on for eternity because there's nothing to stop it. One of the most important skills you can develop if you often find yourself in this situation is the skill of politely ending a conversation. This topic also comes up a lot when trying to decide if you should have feeder rooms or individual rooms. The question I would ask in that situation is how good are you at ending conversations? You see, in the feeder room situation, it's the patient who has to leave. If you struggle to end conversations, that patient might not leave, and you could be stuck with someone who's ruining your schedule. With individual rooms, it's you, the doctor, who has to leave. This can give you an advantage and give you back some control if you struggle with ending conversations. Then the only thing necessary is just the discipline to actually do it. Now let's flip to the other side 
and talk about those who are motivators and tend to go to that well a little too much. Most of them don't really know it if they do, the reason being that a lot of people will immediately respond to the motivation, and that will result in sales. The motivator is living the dream, but what they don't often realize is that if they're motivating for selfish reasons, then they're slowly losing credibility. That loss in credibility often means that they're losing patience out the back door, and often very silently, and they don't even know why, if they even know what's happening at all. The consequence is that motivators often find themselves in a position where they have to continually get new patients. If the new patient wells dries up, then they often pick up, move to a new town, and start over from the beginning. Having no idea that they actually lost all credibility and that was the, that was the cause of all the problems they were suffering in the first place. Obviously, I've given you the most extreme negative version of both personalities, but it's in the extreme where you can most easily see the failure. The best solution is to be well-rounded and exhibit characteristics on both sides. To that end, my favorite book on this subject is the book High Trust Selling by Todd Duncan. He also wrote a more famous book called Time Traps for people who struggle with time management and wasted time. However, in this book, High Trust Selling, he makes the point that no matter what style of selling you prefer, your ultimate aim is to earn trust. He also makes the point that the only way to earn trust is to be trustworthy. That means that any attempt to sell that puts yourself and your needs first is destined to fail eventually. In the book, his advice is to develop the mentality of always doing what is best for the client, regardless of whether or not it has any direct benefit for you. That might seem obvious, but I can't tell you how many people don't do it, even though they can easily tell you the right answer. But then human nature takes over. His point in the book and what he demonstrates throughout the book is that when you make the commitment to simply help people in the best way you know how, with no thought toward yourself at all, and what you're gonna get out of it personally, you end up building a business that's not only financially rewarding, but personally fulfilling. More importantly, you build a reputation based on trust and integrity. If this is an area that you struggle with personally, I highly recommend this book. For me personally, I first read the book about 20 years ago. It immediately resonated with me, and I instantly knew the mindset and the behaviors that I wanted to embody. So let me wrap this all up. We are all prone to relying on our strengths, whether we're selling or adjusting or anything else that we do in our offices. The problem is that sometimes we become so reliant on our strengths that we overuse them to the point that our strength becomes our weakness. Well, I hope you found this helpful today. Hopefully it will give you something to think about this week. Be mindful of when you find yourself running to your strength and be aware of when you might be using it a little too much. As always, I hope you have the very best week possible, and I'll see you again next time.